You know, it's, it's really true, isn't it? We actually can rejoice in our sufferings. It's not just a nice thought that we uh, think, oh, that would be good, wouldn't it? It's a real thing. And um, we've really known what it is to rejoice in our sufferings, even when my voice changes mid-sentence. So. Um, I had a friend at school called Stephen Ainsley Smith, and he wasn't as posh as it sounds. And um, there was, I remember this one time, I've got a vivid memory. We had blackboards in those days. Um, some of you won't remember blackboards. I'm looking at two people in particular here. Um, and the, my friend Stephen, he, he was kind of joking around and schmoozing our year six teacher called Mrs. Ornstein. And um, interestingly enough, I once asked Mrs. Ornstein if her husband was called Frank, just as a joke. And um, she said yes. So that was interesting. She was actually married to Frank Ornstein. And um, so anyway, he's mucking around with her and then he puts his arm round her and she just looks at him aghast and says, take your hands off me. And he'd crossed over a line. And it really stuck with me as a, what? how was he supposed to know? Like there were no warning signs, you know. And, um, and I think that the same can happen in our walk with the Lord, that we can, we're in danger of crossing a line of propriety with God. And we can actually cross it both ways. We can be too familiar, like my friend Stephen was. And when I say familiar, I don't mean um, conversant or like the word family. What I mean is overly familiar. Does that make sense? But we can um, also be too fearful. And um, what I'd like to talk about today is walking that line between friendship and fear. So let's pray. Father, we ask that by your word you would speak to us, that our hearts would be open to respond to what you are saying to your church. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to give quite a bit of context before I read the main passage for today. Um, and I'm going to do quite a lot of Bible reading. So on the plus side, a lot of what I say is going to be inspired. <laughs> um, so I'm starting um, in Exodus 19. You can follow along with your, in your Bibles if you want. Or if you like, you can close your eyes and listen to my dulcet tones as I... Um, paint this picture for you using God's word. So I'm in Exodus 19 and just coming out of verse 9. When Moses told the, wor the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated them consecrated the people, they, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. 
On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So that's our first bit of context. The next bit of context is in 1 Kings chapter 18. I'm sure you know this well. If like me, you're a bit of a thrill seeker and you like the super exciting bits in the Bible, then uh, this bit will appeal to you. 1 Kings chapter 18. Then Elijah, uh, so I'm going to start in verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two sayers of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood, And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. That's our second piece of context. And last bit of context, nowhere near as long. Um, I'm going to Matthew 16. And right there in in the last verse, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So keep that page open, because now we're going to read read the main passage. Matthew 17. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. 
And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Okay, so we've got a lot of context and then we've got our passage. It's worth saying that today is Transfiguration Sunday in the church calendar. Um, So here's a bit of analysis then on what we've read. There are three mountains, three faithful heroes and three theophanies, which is an appearance of God. In the first, Sinai, God appears as a sort of fire, thunder, lightning, storm concept on top of the mountain. And the people are terrified and they must not go near. God speaks, the people tremble, the mountain itself shakes. And the law is given and as a result, the people know what they are to do. And the law is very simple. Be faithful to me and I will bless you. If you are unfaithful, you will be cursed. And then there is this threat of death if they touch the mountain. If they come that close, God is so powerful, so unapproachable that if people get too close, they will be put to death. There's the first mountain. In the second mountain, Mount Carmel, God sends fire on this sacrifice and shows that he's the only true God, the God who does speak, unlike the silent Baal who powerlessly does nothing. The people are once again terrified and they know what to do. We need to be faithful. And then we hear that these prophets of Baal are executed um, because unfaithfulness brings death. And then in the third mount, which is traditionally uh, Mount Tabor, God speaks and in the presence of Moses and Elijah affirms his son and says, this is the one to listen to. Once again, people fall on their faces and there is great fear. Only this time there's a difference. God has hands of flesh that he reaches out with and touches them. Once again, death follows. But this time the death is not of the unfaithful, but the death of the faithful for the unfaithful. (laughs) The son of man, just for a moment, is revealed. His face like the sun. Can you imagine that? I don't know what colour his clothes were, but they shone like bright white. I imagine that the light came out from inside his clothes, from his whole body, and kind of burst through but we don't know. We're so used to people being a little bit disappointing. You know, I I honestly feel like if I spent time with 
um, Billy Graham or Mother Teresa or any of these people before they died, um, Martin Luther King, whoever, I'm pretty sure that after a while I'd realised that there's something disappointing about them. Maybe it's that they are a bit grumpy when they drive or maybe it's that they pick their nose. I don't know what it is, but that there's something about people that when you spend time with them, you, you dig beneath the surface, you start to realise, oh, they're a little bit disappointing. And Jesus is not like that at all. The more we investigate him, the more we scratch beneath the surface, the more we allow ourselves to um, discover more of Jesus, we are more compelled and more amazed by him. The more you realise how you could literally spend the rest of eternity finding out more in non-stop awe and wonder. That's what perfection is like. No skeletons lurking, just purity in every fibre. So don't quote me on this, but um, do you remember um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and um, and Willy Wonka invents this sweet called the everlasting gobstopper. And um, I think that's a bit like Jesus. The more we meditate on him, the more we think about him, he just keeps going, keeps giving. There is more and more. And the act of meditating on Jesus like an everlasting gobstopper can leave us speechless, unable to respond. And this is one of those what Jeff calls a meditatable mystery, um, where we think about the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. And we don't just go off in one direction with one of those things. We try to keep them in tension. And as a result, what we find is that there is this beauty overflowing and this wonder overflowing from that mystery. The more we think about his divinity, the more we fall onto our knees, and the more we think about his humanity, the more we are in awe of God's grace, his humility, his condescension, his imminence, remember that word, the here-ness of God, and his grace. And then we have an experience in this story that's very much like the baptism of Jesus. So God speaks and affirms his son, he says, this is my son, and he says he loves him, whom I love, that he delights in him, in whom I'm well pleased. But then in this story, he adds one more thing. Listen to him. Now, this is fantastic because what we've got is Moses, who represents the law, which was given in the 13th century before Christ, and the prophets, who began speaking with Jonah around just... Um, after about 800 BC. And these represent the two mass, like they are the figureheads of the, the law and the prophets. And so the law and the prophets are there. And what does God say? He says, listen to my son, listen to Jesus. I think we'd do well to heed this word. You know, um, we get prophetic words all the time and we also have maybe on our shoulder like a legalist saying, you've got to do this, you must do that. And I think it's really important that we look at Jesus. Let's look to Jesus. 
And it's really interesting as well because every time I hear the word the law of the prophets, it takes me back to Jesus saying that the greatest commandment is to love God and to love your neighbour. And all of the law and the prophets hang on these two things. So the old covenant with the law and the prophets is now in the presence of the new covenant, a covenant of love, whose figurehead is Jesus. And as if summing up this passage, the writer of Hebrews says in that first chapter, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So I'm going to conclude now. I'd love us to have an extended time of worship so I'm really trying to keep this um, short because I think that God will speak for himself as we worship him and as we lift up our hearts to him. The conclusion is this, fear is a normal part of meeting with God. Anyone who's ever met with God has experienced fear, even an angel of the Lord has to say do not be afraid. It might make us feel tremulous or repentant, might bring a kind of sorrow. Paul talks about this godly sorrow that leads to repentance in 2 Corinthians 7. But it's a normal part of meeting with God and has been throughout history. But it doesn't leave us in that place of fear. An encounter with God is also an invitation to intimacy. Let me put it this way. You know when like a child meets an adult for the first time, they hold on to mum or dad's leg and bury their head like this, yeah? There's that initial fear, that shyness. But when that adult proves to be um, safe and fun, and mum and dad seem to think this person's okay, that child starts to relax a bit and enjoy a new relationship. So the fear starts to allay as the relationship is established. And that's what I believe God would want for us, is that we would meet with him as he truly is, which will naturally produce a fear response, but that he invites us in to go further than just the fear. He invites us into relationship, even friendship. John Piper's dad used to say that the biggest problem he had as an evangelist was not convincing people that they were forgiven, but in convincing people that they needed a saviour, <laughs> that there was something wrong with them. An encounter with God is very effective at doing that. <laughs> it shows us a glimpse of his holiness. And that holiness or the otherness of God makes us feel unworthy for a very good reason. We are unworthy. As we bow in fear, he himself touches us, lifts our heads, showing that he is unwilling to keep us in perpetual fear like other false gods do. 
but he invites us to relationship. He gets rid of our unfaithfulness by climbing a fourth mountain, Golgotha, and takes our unfaithfulness on himself, becoming the sacrifice which trumps all of Moses' sacrifices and Elijah's sacrifices, once and for all, holding open a door for a set period of time until that door closes and he assumes his place as judge. As believers who follow Jesus, how do we walk this line between friendship and fear? I'd like to paint another word picture here. When I was dating Sarah, I took a bit more care of myself than I do now. I'd brush my teeth, I still do that. I would um, spike up my hair when spiky hair was a thing. And I'd wear clothes that weren't just manky old tracksuit bottoms and Crocs. And um, I would take care to be a gentleman and I would listen carefully and try to be as chivalrous as possible. And now that we've been married for nearly 12 years, I'm a fashion abomination. (laughs) All I care about is practicality and comfort. I have become the middle-aged man that I used to scoff at. But watch this, this is really key. Sarah and I are closer than ever. We don't have maybe such tight skin. I might be three stone wobblier around the middle somewhere. But the way... But we are more in love than ever before. All of that courting stage was a precursor to something better, something that is longer lasting, something we're not going to have marriage in heaven, but it's a glimpse of an eternal kind of love that doesn't fade. Now I'm looking at a few older couples here and looking at your nodding heads and realizing there is more to come. There Though outwardly we're fading away, inwardly we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. When you first meet with God, you might get the heebie-jeebies, and I actually have to look up how to spell that. (laughs) But as you walk with him, for some time the relationship changes. So here's the challenge. If you no longer fear God then perhaps you don't have a relationship with him. Imagine if after 12 years of marriage, I was meaner and less caring about Sarah's welfare than I was when we were dating. It does happen in a lot of relationships. People fall out of love. And that can happen in our walk with God. We can become laissez-faire or uncaring about what he thinks. Our tongues become looser and we start using um, blasphemous statements or, or, or cursing. We start drinking maybe more than we should. We start caring less about obeying the speed uh, limit or whatever. And the fear of God has come out of our lives. Well, if that's you, I urge you to meet with God today and allow his holiness to knock some fear into you. But you can fall off the wagon the other way too. So rather than 
just being overly familiar with God and not caring about what he thinks anymore. You can trap yourself in a place of fear where you won't even come close to God. That's not his desire for you. His desire is that you meet with him, which makes the fear, and that he, you would then allow him to lift you up so that you can have the friendship. God doesn't want cowering strangers. Neither does he want casual fair-weather friends. He wants to love and dote on you as a father dotes on his children. He wants you to know him as he is, not just a sanitized version like an idol that is tameable. Knowing him as he is, is terrifying. But that fear is just the beginning of wisdom and invites us in to dine at his table and feast forevermore. Remember the story of the wedding banquet where many people are invited to this wedding and so many people refuse. Too busy, don't care, no fear. And then some come and of those that do come, someone's not dressed properly and is thrown out into utter darkness. Isn't this a wonderful picture of the extremes that we should avoid? Let us fear God. Let us come and receive this feast that he's prepared for us. And yet let us do it with reverence and with fear. Holiness and intimacy. It's a narrow path, but it leads to life. So how can we stay on this path with Jesus? I'll give the last three words to God himself. Listen to him.